0: Okay, let's go. Colossians chapter 1. We got a lot of work to do today. I'm fired up. I can tell I'm going to have to crank it up, put the blowtorch to this chilly January morning. Colossians chapter 1. It's about midway through the New Testament. Four-chapter book. We're going to be in it for the next couple of months. You guys all right? Okay, come on now. Alright, let's Let's uh, let's do this. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Ask God to help us. Lord, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for Carol and Robin and the good folks at Sound Choices Pregnancy Clinic. Thanks for Edgewood Baptist Church and Pastor Merritt and those good folks there 20 or so years ago that Saw fit to begin that ministry. Thank you, Lord, also for Carol's words about grace, that there is grace that covers all of our sin. Lord, we desperately need the gospel. We live in a religious world, in a religious city that is blind to its brokenness. It is arrogantly proud in its self-reliance. And we desperately need Jesus. We need the power and the wisdom that only your Holy Spirit can bring. And we need you, Father, to blow through this room today. We need the words of Colossians. We need our hearts to tune in to the supremacy of Christ in all things. We don't need self-help or tips on how to live better. We need the inspired Word of God to penetrate our hearts and minds. And so help us now, Lord, as we begin this venture in Colossians in these coming weeks. Help us to not be finicky and flighty, but help us to dig down deep into this beautiful beautiful letter. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you're opening to Colossians chapter 1, I want to let you know why we are beginning this study in Colossians. First of all, we are beginning a study in Colossians because it is the Bible. And we have a value here at Crosspoint that we believe deeply in what we call expositional or exegetical preaching. Those are two kind of fancy words that mean that we put a very high premium on working our way through primarily books of the Bible. That's not to say that occasionally topical sermons are not appropriate, and they are at times. But when they are the bulk of what we do, I think that that can lead us into the air of relying on human wisdom and creativity rather than the inspired Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 says, Paul says to Timothy that, The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation and that they are able to correct you and and train you for righteousness and equip us for good works. And so we want to stick close to the scriptures. And also for me, it's good for my soul. I am about as creative as a telephone pole. And so it's hard for me to think up of new stuff to say every week. But when we are working our way through the inspired text, like a letter, like Nehemiah, we just finished the book of the Old Testament and this letter of the New Testament, it's good for the preacher's soul. And I believe it's good for your soul as well. It is also um, good for us because I am not so arrogant to think that you remember individual sermons. In fact, I have a difficult time remembering what I preached last week. (laughs) Reynolds reminded me. It was on the Daniel fast. And so the expectation is not that we would remember three or four helpful points from a sermon, but over the course of our time together in a book, that we will remember the overarching theme of a book. Like we just got done with Nehemiah and the fall, and I hope that you remember that that is a beautiful story of how God works through a rebellious, messed up people for His glory and their good. We did Philippians a couple years ago. Remember that God, even in our imprisonments and in even in our distress and our hunger, God can be glorified and work all things together for the good of those that love Him. Galatians, we started off another. A couple years ago, we remember that it's Jesus plus nothing that equals salvation. And so we're going to dig our teeth into Colossians. And that brings us to the second reason that we're doing this, other than the fact that it's the Bible, is I think that the message of Colossians is particularly appropriate for us today. We live in a self-sufficient, arrogant, proud culture that wants to rely on anything but the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And the letter of Colossians along with the letter of Hebrews, are probably the the two most Christ-centered, and that's really a statement, because the whole Bible is Christ-centered. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 5 to the religious leaders, he says of the Old Testament, that these scriptures testify about me. And so the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus, but in particular, Colossians and Hebrews, of all the letters in the New Testament, are particularly Christ-centered. And so... In this culture where things compete against and for our allegiances, whether it be the American dream, whether it be fear over the economy, or whether it be just the pursuit of some comfort or convenience, this letter of Colossians will be particularly helpful for us today. So what's the issue in Colossians? The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, wrote 12 or possibly 13 letters in the New Testament, and in most of his letters, it is very evident as to why he is writing his letter to that group of people. For example, in the letter he writes to the Galatians, very early on, he gets into the issue, and the issue for the Galatians was is that these Jewish people who had become Christians, who really quite had, had not fully embraced the freeness and the grace of the gospel, were trying to trying to teach these new converts to Christianity that they needed to add Jewish law such as circumcision to their Christianity and so Paul is going headlong after that. He writes to the Corinthians and it's obvious what the issue is for the Corinthians. They were carnal people. It was like an e-documentary. It was like Christians gone wild and they were living in immorality and licentiousness and carnality. And so he's he's going straight after that in Corinthians and and he's writing in Philippians to encourage the churches. He's in prison and he's writing um, to Philemon particularly about this slave, Onesimus. And so he has a specific reason for every letter, but it's harder to detect in Colossians because the issue is not as apparent. And there's been a lot of study and a lot of scholars over the centuries that have written about what is the issue of Colossians. And here's the thing that we kind of probably can best give you is that there was probably a teacher, kind of a super spiritual um god that had gained some influence in the colossian church and he was preaching sort of a higher level spirituality he was he was teaching the people that yeah okay yeah embrace what what you've learned as the christian message but now if you will do this thing if you will maybe kind of live this way or you will listen to my teaching there will be this higher level kind of an esoteric sort of a ambiguous strange sort of a the best thing I can give you is kind of a Deepak Chopra, Oprah-like super spirituality. And so Paul is refuting that. And so as we get into this, that's encouragement to us because there is a simplicity in Christ. There's a simplicity in what we're doing today. In fact, I thought about that as the guys were singing. And we were a little cold and it was a little chilly in here. That we need to, as a church, especially a young church, to embrace the simplicity of just gathering together to worship our culture pushes us towards the next biggest thing, right? And churches get caught up in that all the time. And I have some friends that are in ministry, and sometimes I check out what they're doing, and sometimes it just seems like they're always in this promotion cycle. Like, we're starting this, and it's going to be awesome. And if we turn our hearts into that, It can draw us away from the simplicity and the beautiful rhythm of life of just being people that gather together to sing, to receive communion, to receive new people into the community through water baptism, to love one another, to pray for one another, to forgive for one another, to go through the scriptures together and to live out the words of Jesus together. So there's a simplicity in what we're doing here today. So let's begin reading in Colossians chapter 1. I have got uh, some points to make in the first eight verses, and then we're going to summarize this with three quick points at the end, and then we'll receive communion. For those that want to receive communion, we'll pray for you, and we'll respond in worship to the Lord. All right, let's go. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Let me stop there and say that that word apostle is important. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but an apostle was a special... Office That the Apostle Paul held and an Apostle in the sense that that Paul was an Apostle is a person who was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus who carried with them a special what we call apostolic authority. And there were only just 12 of those men plus a couple others. And those men had this special authority in the early church. Now we know one of them kind of bowed out there at the end, right? Judas. And then there's another one that's chosen in the early parts of the book of Acts. Matthias is his name. And then Paul, who, as we read at the beginning of the book of Acts, was not Paul. He was Saul. He was not one of Jesus's followers during Jesus's time on on earth. But later on, Jesus makes a Reappearance in Acts chapter 9 knocks him off of a horse and converts him and says, Stop persecuting my people. And he reappears to Saul. When Jesus comes back down from heaven and kind of slaps you around a little bit and tells you to get back up and start doing what he says, you do what he says. And so Paul became an apostle through his encounter with the resurrected Lord. And so an apostle is one of those 12 disciples, plus Paul, plus a few others that are Jesus' half-brothers, that have this special authority. Why is that so important? It's because the 27 books of the New Testament all come through either the hand of one of the apostles or through one of their ministry associates. So every one of the books of the New Testament, and that's how we know that what should be in the Bible, is that it has apostolic authority because there were a whole bunch of books written During this time, some of them didn't make it into the Bible, and they didn't make it into the Bible because they were not from the hand or the close associate or the authority of an apostle. So that's an important word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Listen to this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul has written 12 letters. Probably maybe 13 if you count Hebrews, although we're not sure about the authorship of Hebrews, but it sounds a lot like Paul. And in every one of those epistles that Paul has written to the church, churches, Romans, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Thessalonians, Philippians, Philemon, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, maybe I said that already, and Colossians, in every one of them, he starts off in the first few sentences, he uses these words, grace to you. And then he says something like, and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in every one of his letters at the end of his letters, he begins it with grace to you. And he he ends every one of his letters without exception with this phrase somewhere in the last few sentences of every one of his letters with grace be with you. Grace to you at the beginning and grace be with you at the end. Every single one of his 12 or possibly 13 letters, there's something to this. And I think that we should kind of key into this because I think what's happening there is Paul has this expectation that through his writing... The grace of God will flow through that letter to the people that he has written to and then ultimately to us who 2,000 years are reading his letters. And that phrase at the end, grace be with you, that Paul's expectation and our expectation should be as well that, this, that these words are going to stick with us. That's why we want to work through books of the Bible, because five years from now, you're not going to remember individual points, but you'll remember that Colossians is this word, this inspired text through the Holy Spirit in the Paul that he's written to these people that talks about the supremacy of Christ and all things, and we want that to stick with us, to to hang on our spirits. The best analogy I can give you is, um, I hate to admit this, but a couple days ago my little daughter I have three boys and a little daughter and she was running around and she wanted to paint her nails and uh, evidently her mommy and her do that uh, occasionally and I've never done that before but um that whatever the stuff that makes up that's nail polish is that's it adhe- I mean that's that's serious stuff man I mean, when you get that on something, it just doesn't come off. You don't just wipe it off. I didn't realize that because I've never. And the, the 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 sad part about it is, is that my littlest, Abraham, who's two years old, who doesn't quite understand what it is to be a man just yet, was following his sister around. And he saw me painting her uh, fingernails. And so he wanted his fingernails painted, too. And um, against all of my better judgment, just to get him off of me for that second, I did actually paint. (laughs) I painted little Abraham's fingernails. Don't tell him. (laughs) Ten years from now, poor little kid. But uh, first of all, I completely understand this whole nail salon industry because it's hard to paint and to, to do that right. But what I thought I'd do is I thought I'd appease Abraham and just paint it a little bit and then just wipe it off, but once I mean, if you don't wipe it off and like in the 1.2 seconds after you get it on there, it's on you, it sticks, it's messy, and it's hard to get off. And as Paul writes to the Colossians, and as we read this letter, let's not just blow through that word "grace" to you, and then at the end, grace be with you. Our expectation is is that the grace, the power the depth, the ferocious love of the Trinity would rest on us. I mean, we, we just blow through things in our culture, don't we? I mean, I got through high school and college on cliff notes. And aren't we just tuned into the lowest common denominator with everything? The expectation here, as Paul writes to these people and to us, is that grace would be on us and be with us and stick to us. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, this is very important. But before we unpack this, we've got to back up just a little bit. This church in Colossae is a church that is in a modern day kind of uh, Turkey, is, about, is where the city of Colossae was at the time. And it was kind of a, a, a nondescript town. The other letters that Paul has written are to cities that are a little bit more economically or culturally important. Ephesus, Philippi, the Corinthians, um, the Romans. The the city of Colossae, though, was a relatively nondescript. It was kind of the bib city of the biblical times. There was nothing really going on there. And Paul, in fact, never visited Colossae. In fact, that should encourage us because, because God cares about seemingly insignificant churches. He cares about places other than the cultural epic urban centers. He cares about churches like Colossae. He cares about cities, blue-collar towns like Columbus. He's not just, he's not just working in the cities. He's working in the, the boonies, so to speak. But Paul never actually visited Colossae. But while he was in the city of Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, there was this young man named Epaphras who was from Colossae, who was in Ephesus for some reason, maybe he was doing business or something, and while he was in Ephesus, he heard the gospel preached by Paul, responded to the gospel, became a Christian, became one of Paul's ministry associates there for a couple years. Paul spent two years in Ephesus, and then later Epaphras evidently goes back to his hometown of Colossae, and he founds this church. And so that's that's, that should also speak to us that, hey, you never know what's going on here. You never know when you're having an influence on somebody, what's going to happen. Paul's just preaching the gospel in Ephesus. Some young kid comes up, some young guy working in a shop or something, hears the gospel, gets converted, goes back to his town, starts a church in Colossae, which then becomes one of the cities that Paul writes one of the letters to that makes it in the book. That blows me away, man. That just blows me away. Like all the people in Colossae are like, oh, Pat, for sure, whatever. They become Christians. And before you know it, there's a bunch of Christians up in Colossae saying, "Epaphras, like, wow, dude! For that summer internship when you did it in Ephesus, that resulted in our town being in the book. Snap! I mean, fist bump! I mean, that's awesome! But God cares about insignificant people, and so that's how Colossae, this church, was founded. But here's the deal: Paul never actually visited." the church at Colossae, he's now hearing a report brought back to him by Epaphras, the founder of this church, who's telling him that there's some stuff going on there with this teacher who's potentially leading people away from the supremacy of Christ in all things. And so Paul writes to them and he tells them, we think he, first of all, he starts off before he gets into the correction. He starts off with thankfulness for them. That really gives me pause to think, you know, Paul's attitude of joy and thankfulness for the people of God is really, really telling. Like If I heard a problem, if I, if I, you know, 10 years from now, I'm not going anywhere by the Lord's grace. I pray to die here. I say that all the time. I want to pastor one church. I want to plant this church. I want to pastor it. And if you'll have me, I want to preach my last sermon wherever we are, spontaneously combust. In the last sermon, have the next guy who's lined up to take over the church come sweep me up with a dustpan and continue the rest of the sermon that day. I mean, I want to die. I want to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. But um, I, I lost my train of thought. I'm thinking about some young guy sweeping up my ashes. <laughs> what was I talking about? But Paul is is is. Oh, I know what it was. Is that if in 10 years from now, or 20 years from now, 30 years from now. I went on to do something else, and I heard a report that you guys were doing some silly, whack doctrine. And I had the opportunity. In fact, it was the only way that I could communicate to you, and I had an opportunity to write you a letter. I wonder if my first thoughts would be to thank God for you. I might say, what what happened? How can you mess this up? Come on, this isn't rocket science. I preached the gospel to you. But Paul... Paul sees the good in these people, and we live, this is so instructive for us, because we live in an age of cynicism and sarcasm, don't we? Why? Because we feed ourselves, we feast on sitcoms nightly, and the air and the tone and the tenor of the garbage that comes out of Hollywood is sarcastic and cynical and just, it's it's horrible for our souls. And so that translates, that bleeds over into our hearts as we deal with one another. Because when we hear something about somebody else, our first thought, our first instinct is, oh, they're jacked up. How can they do that? Rather than grace, grace to you, grace to you and peace be with you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And a lot of that, I think, is fueled by our insecurity. Because secretly, if we're not anchored in Christ, we're secretly joyful when we hear bad things about other people. Because it kind of props us up, doesn't it? Boy, that's convicting. I'm the only one that feels that sometimes. Right, by your nervous laughter, I will assume that you are with me on that point. We thank God. We should thank God for one another. When we hear something, maybe not a great report about another Christian, we should thank God. But here's the point. In verse 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints... He says, "We thank we I thank you because I've heard something about you." And he says two things specifically. He says, and this is really important, he says that uh, I thank God for you because I've heard of your faith and your love. Now, these two things, faith and love, are these are two intangible things. I mean, you can't go to a place and see faith and love. But what Paul obviously is referring to here is that his he has heard reports. And it is clearly known amongst the church that this Colossae church is truly a Christian church because their faith, their love has worked itself into actual acts of love and tangible fruit because of their faith in Jesus. And so that's instructive for us. James says in his letter that faith without works is dead. And so Paul knows they're Christians because of their faith and love, and I have to ask myself, and we should ask ourselves constantly, we'll talk about this at the end. That how, how do people know that we are what we say we are? We can have a great website, have a great band, do decent preaching, have a good church, build a building, move into another but do all sorts of stuff. But unless our activity, our religious confession is accompanied with true fruit, it's worthless and dead. And Paul knew the Colossae church was Christians, not just because they had a sign out in their front yard, but because they had fruit from their faith and love. Verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Listen to this now. Verse 5, this is key. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Have you ever heard that phrase that... Um, somebody is so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. you heard that phrase Actually, this verse is saying the exact opposite of that. He is saying that you Colossians, you have so demonstrated your faith and love because your hope is laid up in heaven because you you are so like non worldly you are so unconcerned with the things of this world, that it has released you to be full of faith and love and the corresponding good fruit that comes from that. So Paul is actually saying the exact opposite of that. That that you are so heavenly minded, you are so hopeful in heaven, that you are worth something here on this earth. There's this chain of hope in heaven. I don't want you to miss this. In fact, we're going to go through some verses here. Don't flip to them all, but I want to talk to you about having our hope in something other than this world. So just, just listen to these verses. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and, and verse verse 1. Let me read this. I'm going to blow through about, about five beautiful passages on where our hope is. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning Christ saved us, not ourselves, and that's caused us to be reconciled to God. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, that life that is to come. Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. So we rejoice in recessions because these 80 years in America are not all there is to it. Because there's a hope laid up for us. As I was studying this this week and I was thinking about it, I just began to be convicted and realize how very little I think about heaven or even the fact that I am and we are made for eternity. I live as if what happens in the next day or the next week or the next year is everything. Everything. And Paul is saying to them here in Romans that you can go through the suffering because that's not where your heart is, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Verse 4, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And so he's saying, hey, look, there's this hope that goes beyond just your temporal circumstances. Romans chapter 8, a beautiful passage about hope. Again, let me read this, Romans eight eighteen, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was, listen to this, this is important, especially if you are coming out of, if you're needing to detox from the prosperity gospel that you see on PBN and other ridiculous uh, preachers that want to feed you comfort and prosperity. This is a good detox message for that. Listen to this. This will mess us up. For the creation was subjected to futility. So there is a, um, my mom was an English teacher. I'm terrible at the grammatical. There is a noun that is doing this verb. Somebody's doing this subjecting. Somebody's doing this subjecting. For creation was subjected to futility. This Answer. Just have this question ringing around in your brain. By who? Who's doing the subjecting? Who's pushing on creation with suffering and pushing on it and making it futile? Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, so we got three options as to who's doing the subjecting here. The devil, and there is an adversary out there, who wants to steal and kill and destroy. And if you wandered in here and you don't know much about Christianity, don't be freaked out by this. Check into reality. This is not nirvana. We're not just here for moral self-help. This isn't just a Christian moral ethic. This is not just Western religion. This is the way things are. There's a creator of the universe, and in his providence, he allowed for evil to be present, and there is a destroyer who wants to destroy you. So, was it him that subjected the world to futility? Well, I don't think so, because it says that the reason that the creation was subjected to futility was that in the hope that it would one day become free. Why would the devil subject, why would the adversary subject us? To struggle in the hope that someday it would work out for our good. So the second option is mankind. And my goodness, we can't even see straight. How could we plan that? It's definitely not us. So the only other option is is that, that, look, this is a detox message. I mean, this is a detox passage because we live in a comfortable, self-centered, American, wimpy culture. Where anytime anything bad happens, we wonder how God could let that happen. I want to choose my words carefully here. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Abortions. Tsunamis that hit the Indian coast and kill a quarter of a million people in December of '04. Planes that fly into towers. Hitler who comes to power and kills millions of Jews. Nothing happens. Nothing happens outside of the providence, sovereignty, and goodness of God. That is the hardest and the most bitter and simultaneously the most sweet truth in the scriptures. It's bitter and hard when our hope is in these 80 years or 40 years or 10 years or three days. But when your hope is in the face of eternity, you're free From these 80 years. You're free. From the tragedy. And the guilt. And the stain. Of sin. And all its consequences. And Paul is saying this is so important. He is saying to the Colossians. You are so heavenly minded. That you are detached from this world. And that is releasing you. To not care about these 80 years. Which actually makes you more effective. In these 80 years. Do You see that that is so good, so hard, so difficult, so unpopular. It's so true. It's so true. A couple more verses along those lines. Go to Second Corinthians four, or don't go there. Just see it on the screen. These verses hardly need any explanation. Second Corinthians four sixteen. So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Hebrews chapter 10, one of the most uh, convicting passages In the entire Bible, Hebrews chapter 10, listen to this. Probably Paul saying this, we're not sure. Hebrews 10, verse 34. Let me start in verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Listen to this. Contrast this with the way we view how God should help us and how we engage struggle and trial and suffering in our culture. Listen to this, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. And this next sentence just blows me away. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So the IRS or the government men in black coats came to your house and they took your stuff and you joyfully accepted it because... Your hope wasn't in these 80 years or the American dream or the ladder up the real estate market or the next promotion or these things. It was because you had this hope laid up for you in heaven. Guys, I know how hard this is to grasp. I know how hard it is to sink our teeth into. Huh. I, I read these things and I am so convicted I mean, come on, you're talking to a guy who, who went into a funk for a couple of days because I didn't have the NFL network a couple weeks ago, and who's mad because Pete Carroll is leaving the USC Trojans for the Seattle Seahawks. Why? Why would you do that, coach? <laughs> you don't know, I'm from Southern California, and it's our birthright to be... A national powerhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Easy, Trevor. Easy. Look, I I know I'm making light of it. I confess to you that 99.999% of my mental, emotional, and spiritual energy is focused on my comfort in this life. And it is so convicting for me to read these scriptures about people who joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Chew on that for a while. Because they lived for eternity, not for these 80 years. And that's what Paul says. Freed them to be so full of faith and love. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven... Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Let me stop here and say that's the end. That's verse 8. But there's a couple words here that I want to hit on and then we'll be done. Is first that this gospel that has come to them is bearing fruit. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop. Um, What I'd have to do would take too long. So we'll handle that next week. And I just feel like That point I just made about hope needs to sit on us a little bit longer. How does that hit you? Did all things pass through the good providential hand of God? How does that hit you really? Relatively easy to preach. It's harder to live out. You know what? The worst thing that's ever happened to me? I was thinking about this the other day. The worst thing that's ever happened to me is after my freshman year of college at West Point, and I went there to play football recruited to play football. I was about the seventh or eighth string quarterback. (laughs) And it became apparent to me that I just wasn't good enough to play at that level. And so I quit. That's the worst thing that's happened to me. Far worse things have happened to some of you in this room. How do we handle it? Where's our hope? When tsunamis hit shores, when loved ones get a bad report from the doctor, when babies die. Which way does that push us? Away from God? Because somehow he was weak and the devil won in that situation? Or to God? Because maybe he has a plan beyond these 80 years where he's working all things together for good, for those that love him who are called according to his purpose. And in that lies our hope. And when we put our hope there, it it frees us from the clutches of these 80 years. I am not there, but I I, want to be there, I want to be the type of person Like in Hebrews 10, who could joyfully accept the plundering of your property? Come on back, guys. Jesus. There's a hope laid up for us in heaven. and and we we don't we don't have the um we don't have the ability to see it clearly in and of our own so we desperately need you holy spirit to come and to break through our self-centeredness our grip on this world and we ask you to give us the kind and unusual grace to lift our eyes from these 80 years and to transfer our hope from the stuff of this world and put it in you and on you. I heard a preacher that I admire tremendously say this week that pleasure has killed far more people than pain, way more. God, we are the most prosperous, most self-sufficient, most arrogant, least deep, most self-centered culture culture in the history of civilization. And for the most part, the devil isn't killing us with tsunamis that hit our shores. He's killing us with comfort and hope in the things of this world. So God, as one of my theological heroes, J.I. Packer said, would you send us both joy and sorrow to detach our hands from the things of this world? And attach those hands to yourself. God, I spend a vast majority of my time laser focused in this life, in this earth. God, would you help us, help me put my hope in you and in heaven. And God, if there's somebody in this room who has not done that, I pray that they would understand as we will get into more thoroughly next week that it's through the gospel through the sacrificial wrath bearing sacrifice of Jesus God the Son fully man yet fully God on the cross who took the punishment and the wrath of God for us that that is our only hope that because he did that and then rose again And then offers hope, the hope of eternity to all who would turn and trust in him. God, help us to do that if we have never done that today. If that's you, the Bible says that you need to repent of self-centered hope and that you need to believe in what Jesus did for you. And that's the only way. To the secular mind, to the cultural American mind, that seems narrow and limited but actually it's gracious and and unbelievable that god would clarify it so to pour out all his wrath on himself form of His son on a cross so that all who repent and believe can receive this hope if that's you today you we're not going to have you raise your hand or um, embarrass you in any way just repent and believe turn from self-centered hope and believe in jesus the bible says that when you do that you become new he saves you. It's God who saves you, not you. Not religious effort. If you're saying, I can't be the person who does that because you don't know what I've done. What you're doing is you're trusting in self-works. That's the whole point. That it's not by works that we're saved. It's by grace. You're born again. You are born again the same way that you were born physically. Not by your own will or exertion. God causes you to be born again. And if you're hearing me right now and you are placing your faith in Jesus, that is evidence. That is evidence. That you are being born again So repent and believe And breathe the first breath of faith And trust in Jesus You need to talk to somebody about that Come down and talk to me Or somebody else that you know As a Christian afterwards And we'll clarify some things for you But do it right now Repent and believe That's the gospel That's the good news That's becoming a Christian For the rest of us Jesus Would you give us the kind grace To shift our hope From the things of this world So that our hope Would be laid up in heaven settle that on our hearts in a million different ways, I pray. In your great and glorious name, amen.